All right, so it's Advent, uh, and uh, a season that um, I did not grow up observing, that did not even know about, uh, but uh, a season that uh, has come to mean a lot to me, a season of waiting. Because we live our entire lives in Advent, uh, this season is uh, so beneficial and so helpful, I, I find. Uh, but um, it's just a time when we think about and focus on what it's like to be a Christian in the world that we live in today. So uh, at this time of year, for most of us, it depends on really where you are uh, in, in life and, and a bunch of things that, that matter. But when I grew up, this time of year was a time of deep anticipation. Um, Pre-Thanksgiving, the Sears and JCPenney catalogs had already arrived and been torn apart. Now, this is not a thing. If you don't know what that is, they actually used to send things in the mail, which is what comes in the box at the corner of your street, uh, at the corner of your driveway. And so uh, they would come, and, and they would be torn apart, and, and, and presents would be picked, and, and you would already be in great anticipation and hope that you might get the thing that you picked out. Um, so that was it, a great time of anticipation. I remember... And then you, as you get older, though, and, and things change... Um, I think there's a comes a time, maybe this is the age, or maybe you get a certain age in life, or the, the age that we live in, where um, you you Christmas is a bit of a deadline. <laughs> you're like, I have all of these things to get done. Like, you know, it's this weird switch from a kid when you're like, it'll never be here to now when you're like, let's just plan for 2025. Like, uh, we're not going to make this year. It's not going to happen. Like, it's just like that, that switch happens in, in, in our perception of, of time. Uh, and when you're in a kid, that, when I was a kid, I just remember how it was for me. And, and it wasn't, not just for everybody, but for me, it was all I could think about all day long was would I or would I not get the thing that I wanted? I remember one year what I wanted so badly was a big track. And if you don't know what a big track is, it's this. I wanted it so bad. Like, it was this robotic thing from the future that you could program. Now, looking back, really, all you could do is be like, forward, six, right, two. And then we'd go, but it would spin. It had a dump trailer. You could set it up to do mazes. I wanted it so badly. And all I could think about was was, was getting that. And, and so I love this time, thinking about how time is, I experience this season differently, trying to move back towards a place in my heart where it's, it's more expectant and less hurried. And I think that's one of the things that Advent lets us do. Uh, and so I was thinking about how I would explain this to somebody else, um, this season, uh, that we, that, that as we observe it, it's a season of tension is a good word for that. Uh, kind of pulled between two different ideas that seem contradictory, but, but that's just the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, the situation we find ourselves in is in the already but the not yet. Right? So already this thing has happened. Christ has come. The kingdom has been inaugurated. But not yet. It's not fully realized yet. And so it's, it's, if I was trying to explain it to someone, it's like, so like, so you have the big track already? And I'm like, no. Well, yeah, it's like I have the gift already. Yes. They're like, so you're playing with it. I'm like, well, it, it, it's not, it's not everything that, it's not yet. It's not fully, they're like, so like, you know where it is and you go in the attic and play with it. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not like you're stealing something. Like, so your parents let you play with it now, but like, no, 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 it's not like that, that either. It's, it's, how would I explain it? It's almost like I have access to it, but I don't really understand it all the way. 
I have access to it, but if for some weird reason I get distracted and I don't pay attention to it like I should. For some weird, weird reason, there's things that keep me from the gift. Even though it's already there, it's already secure, I don't have it the way that I should yet. Something like that is the season we live in. It's already, but for some reason, not yet. And so that's what we're going to talk about. What do we do in the already, but the not yet? What do we do in this time in between the two arrivals of Jesus? His coming at Christmas, which we are looking forward to, but also we look back on. And his second coming, which we look forward to with great longing. What do we as Christians do in this time, in this season? Uh, today we're going to be in Romans. This, this year we're going to use... Um, there's a thing called the Book of Common Prayer. It's been through a bunch of iterations and stuff where they have different, uh, different things. Not a season, a thing that I grew up with, but um, it's helpful to make sure that uh, you pay attention. As a pastor, it's helpful to me uh, sometimes to make sure that I don't only preach the things that I want to preach. It, the church calendar sometimes forces you into preaching things you'd rather not. So this season, we're going to use some of the texts selected for this season, and I like it because sometimes the texts are sneaky. You don't realize right away why they're Advent texts. Uh, so today, we're in Romans 13, uh, you know, which is excellent. So Romans 13, um, I'm going to start in verse 8. This is Paul, a guy named Paul, writing to a church in, in Rome. He says this, uh, owe nothing to anyone, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandment, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is near to us now, than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." What do we do in the meantime? While we're waiting for this, what, what, how are we supposed to understand and think about the time that we have, the time that we live in, the, times, the time that we live in and what we do with the time that we have? And so uh, Paul starts off this section by saying, owe no one anything except to love one another. So he's making a transition. In, in, in this previous chapter, he's been talking about the government and what you owe the government and how to think about rulers rulers and authorities that you have to submit under. And then he's transitioning back to this thing. And, and matter of fact, in the verse right before this, in verse seven, he says this, pay to all what's owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He says you, you pay these things to whom, you pay your debts, you, you, you give to what the people that you're owed. And then in verse 80, he transitions back to the section and he says, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says, you gotta pay your debts. 
Don't enter into contracts if you know that you can't fulfill them. He says, we need to pay our debts. We need to make sure that we, if we respect someone, we pay them respect. If we owe them money, we pay them money. If there's taxes that we owe, we pay taxes. That's what we do. And then he just says, great turn of phrase, owe no one anything except to love one another. There's a debt that you can't pay off. There's a debt that we owe that you cannot pay off. And that is the debt that to love one another. You can never say like, I have loved people enough, which in the holiday season is difficult because I feel like there are certain family members I've loved enough. I feel like we've had enough years together that I did, I've done enough. And it says, no, like, no, you can't say that. You never get to a place in your life when you're like, I've loved enough. That's a debt that we cannot ever repay. We are always under an obligation to one another. To love. Uh, This uh, second century uh, Egyptian theologian uh, Origen said this, Paul desires that our debt of love should remain and never cease to be owed. For it is expedient that we should both pay this debt and always owe it. It's a good idea that we always pay it and that we always owe it. Because it's good for us to live that way. It's a better place for us to be in. A better humanity exists if we always find ourselves knowing that we are in debt, paying out the love that, we, that is owed. Because our debt is not to the person. Our debt is to Christ. And Christ would have us pay the debt we owe to him to his body. That that's the way that we pay, that he would have us pay, is that we love one another. That we respond to what he's done by loving each other. But this doesn't have the same crushing effect as like financial debt. I don't know about you, but if you've ever owed somebody, I remember when we bought our house 20 something years ago, and this is just a moment of great joy and excitement, and you open the door, the first thing, and you open the door, the first thing I thought was, I owe someone an insane amount of money. Like, and I could just feel the weight of that debt. Looking back now, I made a great decision. Uh, it worked out really fortunate for me. It's a good thing. It wasn't a lot of money. Uh, what I paid for that house 20 years ago, it's worth more now. So that's good for me. Uh, but that debt, that idea of a crushing debt of owing someone finding, that's a thing that you feel like you have to earn. You have to go and make. The debt of love is not like that. Because the debt of love has already crushed another, it doesn't ever have to crush me. Because that debt has been paid by another, I don't ever have to feel like I can, nor should I ever even think that I can do enough to earn that and pay that debt back. It's impossible. But yet we go on paying and paying and paying, loving and loving and loving and loving, not because people deserve it, but because we owe that debt to Christ. And this is for our joy. We don't run out of love. If it was dependent on me, I ran out of love a decade or two ago. But it doesn't depend on me. Christ, God's mercies are new every day. This renewed debt of, this renewed love that we find in our heart to love the people among us that are difficult to love. And I assume that everybody has difficult family members to love. If not, maybe it's you. Kid. We all have this debt because of what Christ has done to love one another. It is not, it is an infinite resource. And then Paul says this, he says that when we do love one another, we fulfilled the law. All of these kind of Old Testament laws and commandments, Paul says when you love, you have fulfilled them. It's when we love one another 
We can say, he says this, he says, the law is summed up in this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has said that. As a matter of fact, they're quoting Leviticus. It's an old, old idea. That all of the laws that you see in the Old Testament are summed up in loving your neighbor. Don't murder. Why? Because that's not loving to your neighbor. It robs them of life. Don't steal. Why? Because it robs them of property. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because it robs them of spouse and all kinds of other things. So many of the laws that are focused on the actual uh, neighbors, your actual neighbors, actual one another, don't do these things. Why? Because it's bad for them. It's not just that there's some random list of rules that we're not supposed to do, right? The rules and the commandments in the Old Testament weren't set up for them that way. It was set up to point them, first of all, to God, but then also to show them, here's how you love your neighbor. Don't move boundary markers. Don't take from them not what's yours. Don't covet the things that they have because that will affect how you feel about them, and that's not loving. So all of these laws, Paul says, we can sum up in just loving your neighbor. So when you love one another well, you're, you're fulfilling, you're filling up the commands that are in the law. But it's not just the laws that are about our neighbor that are important. It's also the laws of, that apply to our own personal righteousness. The things that we do, the things that we do to guide our own hearts. Because here's the thing that turns out to be true. Here's the thing that turns out to be true. Uh, that there, are, there is no such thing as personal sin. Private sin. There's personal sin. There's no such thing as private sin. Let's say I enter into uh, the deepest, darkest hole that I can find, and I'm so far away from everybody, and then I begin to use my thoughts to commit sins, to, to hate somebody else, uh, to engage in lust or whatever it is that's going on, and I do this in my heart, and no one else is affected by this, right? Until I leave the closet, I leave the dark hole, and I go into the world different than I went into it because of what's happened in my heart. You, you don't think that... Uh, Giving our thoughts over to lust affects our marriage, which could possibly have generational impact? For sure it does. You don't think that me being greedy and longing for things, you don't think that affects, has impact on the world? Of course it does. Even the laws that have to do with how I'm supposed to guard my thoughts and guard my own heart have to do in some level with loving my neighbor well. When I don't do them, I am not loving them well because at some point, these things in my heart will lead me to do harm. Intentionally or unintentionally. It's just how it is. See, sin, and that's just the nature of sin. And the laws were set to point us to a place, point us to a thing that guarded our actions to protect us, pointing our hearts to this God and this God who is love all the time. All of these rules, all of these laws that were given in the Old Testament were to point us to love. We need, Paul's saying this, there's not a contrast between loving and law. I think that we think them two different things. There's the rules and there's the rules and there's loving and we have to pick. And Paul's saying there's no contrast. Like we need them both. Here's what I mean. Uh, the love helps us interpret the commands properly. Because if we just have rules, we'll just go, all right, well, let's just do the rules. Like, don't, don't hit this person, so I don't. And I just move on with my life. And, and, and it's just this, it becomes about me and earning myself. But if my goal is to love this person, it's not just do I not hit them, it's how do I seek their good? Love helps me interpret the law. The commandments without love are just rules. They're dead and they are empty and they end up being self-focused. But the commandments help us understand what love looks like. Here's what I mean. Uh, Love by itself without some kind of instruction 
If we just get to interpret love the way that we want to interpret love, uh, we'll end up defending almost anything we do as loving someone. I told Gibson one time, somebody's having trouble with a kid at school, and I said, hey, well, have you just punched him in the face? I never claimed to be a good father. Uh, it's okay. I said, have you just punched him in the face? He goes, oh, I would never. That's why I said, I know you would know. I said, hey, son, sometimes, like, as a man, you sometimes, you grow, sometimes the best way you can love your friend is just to punch him in the face. He's like, what? He's like that's the only way they're going to learn. So like, sometimes you have to punch him. And he's like, dad, I can never do that. I get in so much trouble. And I was like, okay, well, then let's have a conversation, talk about it. And we talked, and he, he handled it much better than I would. But what I was trying to get him to understand this point was, or not what I was getting him to, what I want us, us to understand is that we will defend almost any action, even harming someone, as love. How about this? I find myself battling all the time, especially this time of year, wanting to just give my son more and more and more and more. I just want to just lavish him with all of the gifts that I can. What if that's bad for him? But I love him so much, I just want to give him all this stuff. Yeah, but what if just giving him everything that he wants turns out to be very bad for him? Is that really loving him well? Am I teaching him the right thing by just giving him anything he asks for? Is that going to equip him well for the world? And what I think is love, just pouring this stuff on him, maybe that's not really loving him and I need some rules and some guidelines. And that's what we see in the law, is a way to help us understand our love. Paul isn't by no means suggesting that Christians are saved or that we can earn or that we should go back underneath the law's authority. What he's trying to show us, though, is that the moral commands, those are still valuable to us. We interpret them through love, and they teach us what love looks like. Don't hate your brother. Why? Because you've diminished them and in your mind you've broken them down and torn them down into nothing and you've really killed them in your heart. Don't lust after. Why? Because in your heart you've committed adultery already. It shows us that we are to love one another and love God and these commands. The law needs love for direction and the, while the law needs love for its inspiration. John Stott said that way. As we love, the law shows us what love looks like. So then this is what happens. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hours come upon, uh, come for you to wake up from sleep for salvation is near to us now than when we have believed. He says, and listen, now because this is true, because all these things are, because Christ has come, because there's this new reality that's happened, you need to now respond appropriately. The Bible divides history into really kind of two big ages. We actually talked about this last week. There's uh, this age, and then there's the age to come, right? And the New Testament authors are really clear uh, that the age to come goes as the kingdom of God, and it goes on in forever. It was inaugurated by Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection. The new kingdom began then. The new age began then. But right now, these ages overlap, the inauguration of the new one that has begun, the new one, it's begun, it's happened, it's already happened when Christ died and rose again, but the old age has not ended yet. We live in the overlap. We live in the already, but not yet. It says this, the old is nearly over. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. The old age, it's on its last leg. The new age, the fight, when the, the old age is gone, that is at hand. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not as in night. So there's this overlap. 
there's this guy in town in Birmingham, uh, and he uses his social media. I noticed this on social media. Uh, every single day is a pastor. Uh, he he says the same thing on social media. And at first it annoyed me, and now I absolutely love it whenever I think about it. He says this every day on social media. Christians, we are one day closer to heaven. Every day. He would pop up. It would just like every day. Christians, we're no one day closer to heaven. Next day, we're one day closer to heaven. We're one day closer to heaven. And I moved from annoyance to every time I saw that stopping and thinking about that. Yeah, we're one day closer there's one day closer. He says this. He says, uh, we are, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The time when that, this age ends and the new age comes is one day closer than it was yesterday. He says that we live in a time of the already but not yet. Christ has come. The new age has still, is still here. And so what do we do? We begin to respond to the reality that we live in, a, live in this time when soon and very soon, soon and very soon, Christ will return. Now, he, you, know, you could look at me and say, Chris, that, yes, uh, just FYI, that was 2,000 years ago. Uh, how, how soon is soon. And, and I would say this, I don't, we don't know the date, but I, we know this. We know that this is the end of the age. We're not waiting for another prophet to come. We're not waiting for another thing to happen. We're only waiting for the day of the Lord, for the, for the light to dawn, for the night to go away. That is how we live, waiting and longing for that. And it is one day closer today than it was yesterday. We don't know when it is. It could be by the end of this sentence. Or not, it's, but it's happening sometime soon. And that we as Christians living in this time, we live expectantly. We live looking forward to that. He says you live differently because of this. Live as if you were walking in the day. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. I have this uh, definition of uh, being an adult that I started using some years ago. Uh, how do you know when you're an adult? And I was like, an adult is somebody who gets up and just does what has to be done today. It's an adult. They get up and do what they have to do today. If you have a t-shirt that says, I just can't adult today, don't worry. No one was expecting that you would. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I know it's a joke. I was playing, playing around. But the idea that you just get up and do, do what needs to be done, that you grow up into what you need to be. And Paul says, look at the situation that you're in. Look at the situation, the life that you have. Look at what's going on in the world. The fact that, that, that Jesus will return soon, that the second arrival of Christ is soon, that is the next thing that will happen on God's calendar. And we think about the fact that we live in this and it begins to shape how we live, how we, how we grow up. And Paul says this, he says, wake up, get up, grow up. It's time for us to live And he says that we are drowsy. Be morally, saying be morally ready. The end is near and the proper response is the appropriate behavior for the time that we live in. Just shake off the moral drowsiness and put on the armor of light. Adults have a plan. As we grow up, we have a plan. And he says your plan is to put on the armor of light, to get up and live in this world as the light is coming as one who knows that the light is coming. To live in a world of darkness as, where well, the darkness is still there, but the dawn is coming on the, on, the, on the horizon. You live as if the day is already here. So you get up and you have a plan. How will we live righteously today? How will we live rightly today? How will we live knowing that Christ could return any second? Longing for Christ to return any second. How do we then live? 
How do we put on this armor? Have a plan to live. So here's what I've found. It's helpful to have a plan. I found that entering into situations that I know that may be specifically difficult for me, you know, like just getting up is hard for me. But if I have a meeting, I don't love meetings. I hate meetings. I don't do well in meetings. You should never be in a meeting with me. If you're in a meeting with me and it goes longer than 30 minutes, you should just get up and leave. Because around 40 minutes, I definitely will get up and leave. I just don't, I can't sit still. I'm not used to it anymore. I hate it. I hate sitting in long meetings with like, I just hate it. So when I have to go to do business meetings and stuff and I sit in meetings, oh, I just get antsy and I get irritable. And so you know what I've learned to do? I've learned to prepare myself. Chris, you will be this way. You're going to enter into this situation and your tendency is going to be to be a jerk, to be condescending, to be like all of your instincts are wrong. And instead, focus on the reality that Christ has come and will come again. How do I love well in this situation? And then praying and asking for those things. I'm saying this as if I do this well. I'm telling you I don't, and I struggle with it all the time. But it has helped me when I do prepare. Are you do you have challenging things coming up in the next month? Prepare. How do I put on this armor of light? How do I put on patience? How do I rely on Christ? How do I love even if you will not love it? How do I Shake off the drowsiness and make myself aware of the reality that I'm living in. The light has dawned. In Christ, we are in the last stage. Uh, A new day has dawned. We know that by Christ, Christ has made a way. Christ has shown us the way. And in Christ, he's made us children of God. So here's what we do. He finishes this section this way. Contrasting, walking in the darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So in some sense, we've already put on Christ, right? Paul says in Galatians and in Colossians, he says that just by being a believer, one of the marks is that you've put off the old flesh and you've put on Christ. But there's also a sense where we have to put on Christ in the concrete circumstances of every single day, of everyday life. Uh, to the de- desires of the flesh still threaten how we live, still threaten our heart. And so we should make, he says, no provision for them. Let's not give them any fuel. I am really good at giving fuel to sinful fleshly desires. I am the guy that you see driving down the street, having an argument with some unknown person. I'm the only person in the car, but I'm screaming at someone, slamming my hand in the steering wheel. I'm giving fuel to my anger. I'm giving provision to the fleshly desires, not putting on Christ, not applying Christ to the practical application of every single day. How, let's put it another way. Putting on Christ is working the reality that we have salvation by faith in him, by faith alone, not through works, but by grace alone. Putting on Christ is applying that to the everyday normal situations. So here's the deal. We tell here at BCC, we tell the kids down the hall all the time, Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. We are a Luke 23 kind of place. Uh, That's where Jesus says everything in the Bible is about me. We we teach them this, that it's by faith alone. And I've had multiple parents say, man, I wonder what my life would have been like if I had been taught that at that age. And the answer is, I don't know. I wonder if they're getting it. I don't know. But here's what I've realized, that even us telling them this truth and this reality that is by grace alone, by faith alone, that everything in the Bible points to Christ, teaching them to read is a good thing that we do it. But guess what? I realize this, even that can become a mantra, just a thing that they say. 
Just a thing that they say. Uh, James was working with uh, kids in the youth group, and he came to me one time, one day, and he goes, "Hey, man, uh, I was teaching them uh, this lesson, and uh, the second I opened it up for questions, they were like, hmm, that reminds me of Jesus,' and then just started saying the things. And I was like, well, there goes the whole lesson. Great. Now what are we going to do? That was where I was leading to the whole time. He's these kids already know it, and I'm like, you know what? That makes me so happy." I could not be happier that I, our kids just jumped us straight to how does this point me to Christ? But you know what? That can become an academic exercise. Putting on Christ as how does that play out in the daily interactions and in thinking and feeling and loving of my everyday life. That is the putting on Christ that he's talking about here. Here's what I mean. Imagine a situation where uh, you, someone's hurt you, right? They've done wrong. They've wronged you and you're mad. And they're your enemy now, and you realize that you have the opportunity to destroy them, to humble them, to humiliate them, to put them in their place for what they did to you. You have that. The opportunity arises. You know the exact right thing to say, and you're going to put them in their place. Here's the thing that you need to know. It feels real good. It feels real good to like put somebody in their place. But let's zoom out for a second. Would you want a family to act that way? Every time you had the opportunity to put somebody in their place and act that way, do you want everybody acting that way constantly? To to proving who they are constantly? Proving their self-worth and value? Let's zoom out from a family and go like maybe a small community like a church. Do you want people acting that way? No, it shapes our heart and it wounds one another. Uh, Putting on Christ is when you have the opportunity, when someone has diminished you, when someone has hurt you, when someone has injured you, and you have the opportunity to wound them back, that you just go ahead and don't. Why? Because you have a debt of Christ, a debt of love to Christ. And so I'm going to figure out how to love this person anyway, even though it costs and hurt me. That's what we have to teach the kids. That's what we have to show the kids, that when we hurt one another, when we, that we forgive. That this is a place where when we wound one another, we forgive. That we reach out to those that are hurting and we draw them back into us. Because that is what we do. That is the working out of Christ in our life. That we absorb the pains and the hurts and the wounds to love others well. I want them to know the answer and be able to say it, but I want even more for them to see us work it out so that they begin to work it out in their lives. That we confess and repent in front of them. Hey, you know what? I wanted this and it was the wrong thing to want and this led me to this and I need to ask God for forgiveness and I want you to know this. And we live this out, this putting on Christ in front of them, applying the reality of a risen savior. The dawn is already here, that the light is coming, the day is coming in fullness and we live that out in their presence all the time. This is the putting on Christ. Uh, pretty famous book. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote this book. Um, and he says this. He said, say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. As you wait for the bus. We don't do that anymore. As you wait in line at Publix. Anything, anytime your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it as utterly and completely true. These six things. I am a child of God. That is putting on Christ reminding you who you are in Christ. I am a child of God. Two, God is my father. Reminding myself that God is my father. He loves me, that he has given me inheritance. Three, heaven is my home. Christians, we are one day closer to the reward that was promised, to the reward that we will have to being with our savior. Four, every day is one day near. Five, my savior is my brother. And six, every Christian is my brother too. 
Say this to yourselves. Repeat this to yourselves. Packer encourages us. This is the putting on Christ daily and applying it to every aspect of our heart. This is how we live. This is how we live, applying the reality of the truth that has happened to the time that we live in, longing for the day that, it, the day that he returns. Let's pray. Father, soon and very soon, soon and very soon, we are one day closer to heaven. But we live in the already but not yet still. Give us eyes to see, give us courage to live in the already but not yet. Not in darkness, not giving provision to the desires of the flesh, but putting on the armor of light. Living as people of the dawning day. Loving like our Savior loved. Giving as he gave. Encourage us. I'm so grateful for a church that constantly points me to Christ, that constantly reminds me of, his, of your goodness, that constantly reminds me that you've called me to forgive and to be forgiven. So may we be a place that lives out in every single day this putting on Christ that we are forgiven, that we have life, that the day is coming. And we live loving one another and in so doing, fulfilling the law. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.